God's word has been passed down through the ages by various groups. But who were these people? Who are they now? And who will they be in the future? This is Signs of the Times Radio with Kent Kingston. Welcome to Science Radio. I'm Daniel Kubedek, and joining me today is the one, the only, the enigma, Kent Kingston. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Yes, it's uh, Kent here with Daniel. Daniel in the hot seat doing the questioning today because I wrote the article that we're focusing on today. I feel like I feel like introducing you like that is is like. You know those boxing ring announcers? Yes, that's right. Well, I thought I'd add the crowd noises because I, I was sort of picking up on the hype. That's right. Yeah, the article is called The Survivors. It's in the March edition of the Signs of the Times magazine. You can check that out online, signsofthetimes.org.au. Back to you, Daniel. Yes, thank you for plugging your own article there. <laughs> well, it's a great piece. I mean, you talk about the people that are... I don't know if I should use the phrase left over because mm. then then you talk about how they are survivors. So there's there's a few things that you mentioned in the article which was first of all Australia Day and Invasion Day mm. which is an interesting topic. I mean, I know recently there's been more of a swing towards people wanting it to be like the date to be changed because that is the day that the British arrived in Australia mm. and for the indigenous people of Australia obviously brings not happy memories, definitely painful ones, lots of death and loss. You know, that happened for generations thereafter, so it's like the start of a very bad period for them. Yeah, I, I actually quite like Stan Grant's take on this. He's an an Australian, you know, journalist and these days seems to be much more a bit of a public intellectual as well and, and an author himself. But he says, you know what, I don't think we should change the day. He says we should keep the day, but we should keep it in all its complexity yes it's a time obviously when you know a big change happened to to this land of of australia and there have been a lot of good things that have happened but it's also a time when some pretty awful stuff kicked off you know particularly for the indigenous people and he you know identifies as indigenous he also identifies you know with one of his parents who has a an Anglo-Irish background, I think. And he says, you know, I guess somehow he feels that, you know, his family ancestry sort of encapsulates, you know, some of the struggle and some of the complexity that, that Australia Day is about. But, you know, I, I'm not so fond of Invasion Day as as a name. It's very, um, I don't know, it, it focuses on the, the bad things that other people did. You know what I mean? I, I think if we're going to change the name of the day from Australia Day, perhaps we should go with survival day because I guess I see that as much more positive. You know, it suggests, yes, there were challenges. Yes, there were struggles, but we've survived. And um, I think that language, you know, of surviving and survival uh, really, it resonates with me. I don't know, does it with you too, Daniel? Well, that's, that's the thing that I was actually reading an article about domestic violence the other day. And people were saying that those who have suffered domestic violence should come out and share their stories and it was actually you know the that word survivors there again like there is a lot of power in the word survivors absolutely and if 
if you have a group of people who have gone through the same thing, it's almost like a collective word for them. Mm-hmm. Well, that's right. Well, I mean, I, I was a social worker, you know, for about a, a decade. Certainly, it's very much the done thing in you know domestic violence sort of worker circles not to call someone who has suffered or is suffering domestic violence a victim, because you know a victim is a very it's very passive language. It's it's focuses on the fact that someone is doing something to you. So yeah, they do prefer prefer not to talk about victims, but to talk about survivors. You know, I, I'm a survivor of domestic violence, and that is much more em- empowering language. You know, I, I get that. It's you just tweak the language a little bit. Some people say, "Oh, it doesn't care." You know, we know what you mean. Blah blah blah. So long as the message gets across. But I think there are subtle undertones or, or overtones in it involved in the language that, that we choose. You know, this is the thing that makes the anti-PC brigade roll their eyes. But, but I do think there, there is power in, in that sort of language. You know, so talk about survivors. Yeah, because as a grammar man yourself, I mean, you are employed <laughs> as an editor. Well, that's Don't you right. think there's a, a connotation to the word victim where it's almost like they never were able to pick themselves up? Whereas with survivors, it's like they, they certainly embraced their past, but then they got up and moved on is that the right word or like rather well even if you're in the middle of it and you haven't yet moved on as you say you're still surviving yeah you know when when you have an awful situation like you know just the other week where we where we had a a a woman and her children who were were killed by by her ex-partner well then clearly you know she's not a survivor clearly you know she she was a victim she she has uh, she's no longer with us you know she's at rest you know, thank, thank God for that, at least. But, yeah, but anyone who, who is still alive, whether they're in the middle of it or whether it's the, you know, the terrible incidents are past them, you know, can use that term, I'm a survivor. Mm. It's actually interesting because I, I, I'm a big student of World War Two, And, well, for one, my parents are from Poland and the Polish national anthem goes along the lines of Jeszcze Polska nie zginęła, which translates to Poland has not yet perished or like yeah. died or whatever Absolutely. which is like has that sort of survival theme to it but also looking at um the, i was studying the holocaust quite a bit when mm. i was in high school I was reading li- lots of books about it and you know that's something you kind of touch upon in the article is genocidal survivors yeah, yeah. so so similar sort of thing then like i was talking to people who had family who were holocaust survivors they embraced their past, but they were not ashamed of it either. Mm-hmm. And I think, I mean, you're right about Poland. I mean, you think of the history of Poland during the Second World War, you know, taken over by the Nazis. And then after the war, of course, the, you know, the Allies took control of Europe and cut it up between them. And uh, Poland, unfortunately for it, uh, you know, fell to Soviet Russia. So, you know, then it was occupied by an, another another force so yeah i i understand the uh the thinking uh, the sentiments you know behind that national anthem you know poland is still here we, we have survived and you could say that for for a lot of people i mean i have a a little bit of a, a weak spot for for the underdog i have to say mm. i'm fairly sympathetic you know towards the kurds for example who are you know there are kurdish people living in iraq in Iran, yeah, they were in, fighting in, ISIS. Yeah, in, in Syria, yeah, they they were the the fighting force that did the most damage against ISIS. Yeah, and then they were sort of left out to dry quite a bit. Recently, well, they have, yeah. They? I mean, they they have dreams of having a, a nation of their own, but it would require taking bits of Iraq, Iran. Syria and most controversially Turkey, which is, you know, the, the Turks basically see any Kurdish nationalists or sentiment as terrorism, basically. And yeah, I mean, there have been Kurdish groups that, that have, 
you know, being terrorists, basically. But yeah, I, I guess I have I have sympathy towards them. And you mentioned the Holocaust too. You know, I've I've been to to Auschwitz in in Poland. There, I've I've seen you know some of the evidence that is left over, and it's it's pretty chilling and it's pretty sobering stuff. And and I do understand that that sense of you know pride and identity that that holds the jewish people together equally though i recently read a book called children of the stones focusing on the situation in israel slash palestine but particularly from the palestinian point of view and they have a, a similar sentiment you know they they have a popular slogan which is existence is resistance you know the very fact that they continue to exist as as a nation, as a people, you know, regardless of the fact that they're increasingly hemmed in, in in the territory, you know, controlled by Israel, that they're also living in refugee camps in Lebanon, in Jordan, in in Syria, um, you know, that they, they're all all over the place, scattered everywhere, but they still, you know, have this strong identity as a people. Existence is resistance. I think that's a a really you know powerful slogan. Yeah, because not all nations have survived, of course. You know, mm. there are some who are no longer with us. Now, what you found is something interesting, which is the Bible actually does refer uh, numerous times to various groups as being survivors, except it uses a sort of a different word, which mm. is the remnant. Now, you you talk about a sort of the first example of, of where a remnant is mentioned mm. when... Um, Persian conqueror Cyrus arrived in Israel, I think it was. Well, yes, it was. Cyrus took over the Babylonian Empire, of course, and, and at that time the, the Babylonian, or the, the Neo-Babylonian Babylonian Empire technically, was in charge of that territory of Israel. So, so yeah, when uh, when Cyrus the Persian conquered you know Babylon's main cities, you know, including Babylon itself. Then yes, the the territory that Babylon had controlled, including what we call modern day Israel and Palestine, fell under the control of of the Medo Persians. So yeah, this whole period of history, I guess, introduces. Uh, well, let's just say it's a particularly traumatic time for the uh, for the people of of Israel, those those ancient Israelites or, or Hebrews or, or Jews or ha- however you whatever language you know, you want they had of course had their you know their golden age under king david and king solomon you know the nation was as rich as it had ever been it was as wealthy as it had ever been and it had the most territory that it had ever had you know this is considered the golden age of israel but then things started to get complicated. Things broke up. You know, the the northern tribes split off from the two southern tribes, which were centered around Jerusalem. And those ten northern tribes were actually conquered by Assyria, which was sort of a, a precursor to, to Babylon. And the Assyrians basically resettled and scattered those ten northern tribes. And they pretty much disappear from history from that point, which is kind of sad i guess you could say they probably come back with the the samaritans and and that sort of thing but they're not don't quite have that strong identity anymore so yeah so that that was pretty rough so there's two southern tribes then that stayed around jerusalem so we're talking about the tribes of of benjamin and the tribe of judah from which we get the word you know judaism jewish you know all, all that sort of stuff so that tribe of judah is sort of the, the main tribe there that that remained they were then threatened by Babylon, you know, as the Neo-Babylonian Empire uh, came to the fore, and they were, like Jerusalem was repeatedly like attacked and laid siege to, 
and conquered and basically there were a number of occasions where prisoners of war were taken from Jerusalem and resettled in Babylon. So this is where you get that, you know, that Boney M song, you know, by the rivers of Babylon where we sat down, you know, um, you know, singing songs about Zion. That Boney M song sort of refers to that period of history. So here are the, the Jewish people split into uh, into remnants, I guess. First of all, you've got this remnant of people that is taken away in exile to Babylon. Then you have the remnant that is left behind in Jerusalem, and it was pretty much like the very old, the very poor, and yeah, it was a small, struggling uh, group of people. And so, yeah, the, the Bible does use, um, depending on which translation you use, but the, the Bible does use the word remnant a few times to describe these survivors of, of these various invasions and, and holocausts. You know, there, there were a lot of people killed in those times, and it seems that there was a, well, the Neo-Babylonian Empire in particular had this program of deprogramming, you could say. It was basically, what they were doing was looking at cultural genocide. So you see that as you read the book of Daniel, for example. You see these these young men being taken prisoner from Jerusalem, being taken to Babylon. They're given Babylonian names. It's hinted at in the first chapter of Daniel that they were actually castrated as well, so they became eunuchs. So, you know, this is a pretty horrific, traumatic sort of thing to, to happen. And, of course, then they were taught all the wisdom of the Babylonians, all the learning. They would have had to learn all, all their languages, all about their gods. They were given, you know, food from the, from the king's um, table, so the Babylonian food as well, which is obviously a, a big deal for, for Jewish people. And, yeah, basically there's, there is this attempt at cultural genocide to basically wipe out that distinct cultural identity of, of those Jewish people in Babylon, but they survived. And that is the, the beauty of the story. And, you know, 70 years later, under when the Persians took over that empire, and they were actually able to return back to Jerusalem. But, of course, it was, you know, never quite the same. It was never quite the, the golden age it, it had been. W- would it be fair to say that God's will has always survived through a minority? Because survivors can have a connotation of being a word that's people that there are less of them than there used to be because of what they've been through. That's a really, really good point, Daniel. And I think there's probably a a germ of truth in it because basically it it seems that almost any time like God chooses a particular people and and blesses them and protects them and looks after them, that group of people over time becomes complacent. The initial sort of fervor and, uh, and purity of, of, of that kind of movement of God amongst them becomes, I don't know, watered down, corrupted. You know, you, you could use all, all sorts of words like that. As people start to think, well, I think they start to forget really what God has done for them in, in the past. And you read that in the Bible over and over again, you know, don't forget what God has done for us in the past. You know, don't forget. Yeah, like the Israelites yeah. in the wilderness, hey. Well, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So it's, you know, don't forget about, you know, how God helped us escape slavery in Egypt. Don't forget how God parted the Red Sea. Don't forget how he gave us manna in the wilderness, you know, bread every day and made sure we had water. You know, God did incredible things. Don't forget how he uh, He was there when we, you know, when we entered the promised land and took over, basically, in, you know, invaded that, that land and, and took possession of it. After a while, you get comfortable. 
And I think this is something that we need to watch out for too. You know, there are times in our life where we feel the presence of God really closely, and often those are times of struggle. But as things sort of start to settle down, we start getting comfortable, and we start forgetting, you know, how dependent we really are on God. We start to suspect, possibly, that we are, in fact, the authors of our own destiny, that our genius has, in fact, produced the good life that, that we're living. And and when that happens, yeah, we, we lose connection with God. Um, and when you're talking about a whole nation or a whole people group, in particular their leadership, when this sort of thing starts to happen, that's when you see injustices start to creep in. You start to see, you know, the people on, on the fringes of society being treated badly. And yeah, things get messy. And it seems that there's a pattern, you know, going through history that what God often has to do is to find a new chosen people and they are often minorities they are often at the edges you know at the fringes at the margins of of these larger groups which have you know become empires have become powerful have lost the plot in in some ways so yeah that does seem to be a pattern that that god you know has done over over and over again you know, you can see it with with the Jewish people in, in some ways. You can certainly see it with the early Christian church. You know, that was a, a very, you know, vital, powerful, apostolic uh, group. But over just a few hundred years, got basically tangled up with the pagan Roman Empire in a lot of ways, to the point where really the some some of the essence of of what Christianity was supposed to be about was lost. So you know, then you know, it's a there's obviously a lot of centuries go by. Then you have the Protestant Reformation, which is basically trying to trying to recover you know the essence and and the vitality of of true Christianity. And God was very present, you know, in that minority group, you know, they were persecuted, you know, there were, there were martyrs, martyrdoms, there were, you know, there were massacres. There we're were talking about things like the Waldensi, Waldensi people in the Italian mountains. Yeah, well, that's, you know. yeah, that, that's even, be, even before the Reformation. Yeah, the, the Waldensis, but, are, you know, the Reformation, we're talking about like Martin Luther and John Calvin, and this sort of thing. So you're talking about the, the people who were the founders of the Lutheran church and the, you know, the, the Calvinist church and the and that sort of thing but then over time i mean even near the beginning they weren't perfect people you know there were wars there was violence but then when some when another group came along like the anabaptists for example saying hey if we're returning to the bible you know shouldn't we baptize like they did in the bible you know adult baptism by full immersion and the you know and the lutherans and the calvinists and the others they freaked out so they persecuted this new group you know what i mean Mm. so it seems to be that yeah exactly as you're saying that god often needs to work through a persecuted minority or a remnant, you know, to use biblical language, in order to get his message through. It's almost like he needs us to be vulnerable in order to, to get through to us properly. Mm, that's right. Now, in, in Revelation, there is mention of the remnant group. Now, is what sort of group is this and what is their purpose? Yeah, well, this is interesting that that Revelation, obviously, in in a lot of ways, uses the language of uh, of the um, the invasion of Jerusalem, the uh, the Babylonian exile. You know, the the book of Revelation, which is you know obviously written you know a, a lot of centuries after those actual events, uses the same language of of Jerusalem and Babylon to make a spiritual point. So basically. Babylon symbolizes in the in the book of Revelation the corrupt system that that often is a system that combines political power with religious authority 
So you end up with a, a power that is trying to compel people through through violence and you know and force of um, you know, force of, of military power to to um, to force people to actually worship and to worship falsely, really. But there is a group that Revelation mentions, and at Revelation fourteen twelve, it talks about the people of God who keep his commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. So this is a, a particular group that is is persecuted. I guess it, it could be a small, uh, you know, a smaller group, but it's, yeah, it's, it's a group that somehow manages to remain faithful. And I guess sometimes, you know, when Christians look at this sort of language, they're like, they're very triumphant about it, you know. Oh, yeah, this is us. You know, we are we're the remnant. We're the last day people. As if, in some ways, they they've achieved that by the by their own genius. But I think when when we do that, we forget the historical background of what a remnant is all about. You know, a remnant is a group of survivors. Uh, a remnant is is a group of people who is only there, you know, because of, of the grace of God. So yeah, it says in in the Old Testament, in the first chapter of Isaiah, actually, it says, unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom. We would have become like Gomorrah, which of course, there were two cities that were uh, famously destroyed with, with fire and brimstone. So yeah, unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, this is very much a, a story of, of grace here. So the the group that's described in Revelation, like who who are these people? Because we've talked about God using various different peoples throughout history, as we mentioned. There was the Israelites at one stage, and we had mm. the, the Protestant movement, Reformation. So, who is this group that's described? Because Revelation is a book of of things that happened before Christ's second return, right? So, yep. who is who is in that group? Is it denominational? I don't think it is. It's not denominational and neither is it, you know, racial or, or ethnic. The book of Revelation a number of times, you know, it, it talks about this this great multitude that is, you know, the people who, who God has chosen, who, who God has saved. And these are people of every tribe and nation and, and tongue and people. And furthermore, the book of Revelation even says that God's people are within Babylon. And I guess we only need to look back at that example of of ancient Babylon and that those Jewish people, you know, God's people being taken prisoner or and into exile into a, the ancient kingdom of Babylon to understand what this means, you know. So when Revelation says, hey, come out of her, my people, you know, her meaning Babylon, you know, come out of Babylon, my people, that's the call that God God makes, and, and in fact, that's that's echoing the the Old Testament prophets anyway. That's a quote from the Old Testament: "Come out of Babylon, my people." This suggests that there are right now people who God considers His own, who are living within, or may even at this point identify with a system that is, you know, spiritually or or ethically or or you know politically corrupt. But God says, "Hey, I've." I've been watching you. I can see your heart. I can see the, you know, the the direction of, of your life and the the your your need for me, your your yearning for me, your desire to be connected with me, and I consider you because of that one of my people. But I guess what Revelation is telling us is that there will come a time when we will all need to make a stand and choose sides. So even though at this stage perhaps we could say that yes, there are God's people who are living within Babylon, 
the message of Revelation is come out of her, my people. If you look at Revelation 14 in particular, the three angels' messages there are a message to, hey, don't go down with Babylon. You know, that ship is sinking. You don't want to be on it when it sinks. So I think there does come a time in, in all, of, all of our lives where God does put a choice in front of us and, say, and, and says to us, hey, listen, it's time for you, you to make a choice. It's time for you to, to decide whether you're going to remain a part of, of this corrupt system that you're a part of, whether that's a, a religion, whether that's a, a, another group that is sort of dragging you down, you know, ethically or, or spiritually. God says, you know, it's, you need to make a stand. Um, this is the next step I have put in front of you, you know, for you. And I, I guess that's a, a personal sort of spiritual way to read it. But I think what Revelation is also telling us is that, hey, History is going to proceed in in this certain way where there will come a time and a point of decision for a lot of people. There will come this tipping point where a, a lot of us will have to decide whose side am I on. And unfortunately, the the side of, of power and empire and comfort and safety is not going to be the right side. As, as you've been pointing out, Daniel, the, often the side of God is the side of, of the minority. It's the side that risks persecution, that risks marginalization. And being faithful to God has involved being a part of, of that group for for a very long time, you know, thousands of years, basically. Yeah, because when we when we look at the the history of the earth, like look at you know way back in G- Genesis and and that sort of stuff about what happened when the world was created and how there was the angels, Satan and the angels, his angels were cast out of heaven and it was mm. split in two essentially. There was you know black and white essentially. Yeah, and that's the way it's going to end off in human history, isn't it? It's not going to be, oh, there's this middle gray ground. It's going to be one or the other. Yeah, well, that's right. And I mean, you know, we've seen just over the the last few weeks with, you know, the COVID-19 coronavirus, how quickly things can change and how quickly people go into panic mode and how governments can become, you know, authoritarian for, you know, reasons that, you know, it seemed justified at the time, but perhaps we, we don't realize the full implications are until until later on. The world is changing very fast and it could change very fast and things could get very stark very, very, very quickly. We are still, you know, human beings and the sorts of things we've seen in history that have been done by human beings, we're very capable of doing again. You know, people historically have found scapegoats in, in tough times. You know, they look for someone to blame. And I guess what Revelation tells us is that it's the, the faithful people of God, you know, as Revelation says, the people who keep his commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. It's possibly those people who are going to be the ones who are in the firing line. Yeah, so what's the final message of hope for this remnant? Because it's not all doom and gloom. It's not all they're going to go through tough times. What's the final sort of reward for their faithfulness? Yeah, yeah. Well, look, I mean, obviously, you know, survival, you know, is, you know, existence is resistance and, and all that sort of stuff. You know, that's something to to sort of keep us going through, through the tough times. But... I guess what God promises in the end is not just survival. You know, he doesn't just want us to survive. He wants us to thrive. And again, you know, paralleling that ancient story of the the Jewish people's return, you know, out of Babylon and, and back to, to their, their holy city of Jerusalem, we see Revelation, you know, echoing that, but going bigger and going better, saying, hey, listen, you know, you know, John has this vision. He says, um, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And that's right near the end of Revelation in, in chapter 21. You know, really, really powerful verses that, that uh, I guess, promise the incredible hope, the incredible future that God has planned for us. Mm, absolutely. What an awesome promise. Hey, thanks, Kent, for joining me on Science Radio for another week. It's been fantastic, Daniel, and we'll uh, kick you out of that chair next week and I'll take hosting duties again, hopefully. <laughs> not, not, not that you didn't do a fantastic job. Thanks, Kent. Today's episode was based on an article appearing in this month's Science of the Times magazine. A subscription is just $26 for 11 issues a year. To find out more, visit signsofthetimes.org.au. Signs of the Times has been published in Australia since 1886 and is proudly produced by Adventist Media. This is an Adventist Media podcast.